Welcome queen to the body love binge with me Victoria. Although we're all unique, honestly I'm no different to you. I'm just a girl who's been through some hard shit, figured out how to thrive and made it her life's mission to help others to do the same. I've beaten anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder and I'm a domestic abuse survivor. My intention for this podcast is to empower you with weekly episodes on all things food freedom, body love and of course juicy, yummy self-love so you can embody the healthiest and happiest version of you. Enjoy the episode my love. Hello my queens, welcome to another episode. I have a guest with me today and I actually can't pronounce the surname of this guest so I'm just going to say the first name and I have with me today Robin and Robin is a writer and body liberation activist. They write about their experiences with eating disorder recovery, challenging anti-fatness, body liberation, health and wellness. Robin is currently a health and wellness feature writer for Health Digest. Their work has been published in The Tempest, The Establishment, Bedsider, Scary Mummy and Kinkly. And the questions that I asked Robin, but we covered so much more. She has so much knowledge about all of this and it's really eye-opening to listen to this conversation. And it's what I took away from this was that we can actually make a change in the world for fat people, for medium people, for thin people, because it's the fear of fatness that we're all experiencing. And we get to change that by changing the things that we can control in our world. So the questions I asked Robin were, can you share your story and how you ended up in the professional anti-diet space? Why do you call yourself fat? What was it like to recover into a fat body in this fat phobic society? What barriers do fat people face? And and she talks about the oppression and all of that. And how can people confront their own anti-fatness in recovery? And what can we do for each and every one of us to change the world? And so the world doesn't continue to be fat phobic. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Robin as much as I enjoyed listening to her. Robin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, I'm very excited for this. So when I have an expert on, I start with 10 quick rapid fire questions. So are you ready? Yes. (laughs) Okay, number one, let me bring them up. Your favorite thing in the world? My son. It's Mm -hmm. kind of corny, but my toddler. No, of course it's not corny. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm only a fur, fur baby mom. So, uh, yes, well, I'm sure your fur baby is your favorite too. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Number two, your favorite yoga position, if you could pick one. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I really love a modified side plank with the knee down, reaching arm overhead. I really love side bends. I feel like it really opens up everything for me. Mm, I love that. Number three, your favorite food. Pizza, always and forever. Same. (laughs) Well, pizza and chocolate, but you know. Yep, yep. (laughs) Number four, have you got a favorite animal? And if so, why? Ooh, I like that. Um, I mean, I I saw that you're a horse girl um, and I was also a horse girl. um, So I still, I don't ride anymore, but I do still really love horses. 
Yay. I just, um, yeah. I don't know. I think it's something about having ridden when I was little, especially jumping. I saw that you, mm. you do jump. It's like you're flying. Exactly. Yes. It's like you're flying. That's like, yeah, I yeah. love to jump in. Love it. Number five, three things that you love. Um, writing. Um, I'm a writer professionally. Um, and most of the time I love it. Um, my family, um, and martial arts actually. Um, I mean, if there was a fourth one on there, it would be yoga. They're kind of tied martial arts and yoga, but I train, um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I'm a purple belt. Um, and I train Muay Thai and I used to be an amateur fighter. Oh, I'm sure we're going to go into that because I have questions around that. That's yes. very exciting. <laughs> okay, the next one, number six, is there one thing, well, probably more than one, but what one thing do you really dislike in the world? Oh, um, there's a lot more than one right now. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think if I had to choose one, it would just be the like the concept of systemic oppression um in just like all of the forms that it shows up in um and that would take for forever to list all of that but yeah just the fact that we live in such a systemically oppressive world mm -hmm. with you on that one okay number seven in three words what has your eating disorder recovery taught you mm, oh my god three words I'm really verbose so three words is hard um you can also use a few more it's just because yeah. I want to hear your story when we go yeah. into the body of the thing but just for this part of it yeah totally um resilience um love um and acceptance mm resilience love acceptance mm. thank you for sharing yeah number eight do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you like to live by oh I am um, I it's funny I am not a fan of poetry in general um but I love Mary Oliver um and I actually have tattooed on me um now tell me what will you do with this one precious and wild life? Mm. Um, so, oh, chills. I just, I love Mary Oliver. I was, I was so sad when she passed um, recently. She just gave so much beauty to this world. I've not actually heard of her, but I'm going to check her workout now. Oh, so thank you. She's amazing. And it's interesting because um, that quote that I have tattooed on me is often used as like, a push to productivity, um, you know, like, all right, what are you going to do with your life? Um, and the funny thing about it is that all Mary Oliver ever did was walk in the woods and mm. like sit and write poetry. Like the whole point of the line was, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to reflect. Um, so I just, I, I love to see how our world twists mm. these things. Um, As with everything. Purposes. Yes. Even the word health, I can't say the word health without having to like air quote. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. I could talk about that forever. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Well, we'll go into definitely. Good. Okay. Number nine. Is there something that you love that others might think is weird or strange? Ooh. Hmm. 
Um, I mean, this is like very specific um, to my profession, um, but I love editing um, and like specifically my own work. Like most people um, really hate editing their own work, um, but I really love it. I see everything as an opportunity um, to kind of, maybe because I'm a perfectionist, I see everything as an opportunity to go back in and just make things a little bit better. Yeah, I don't like editing. (laughs) (laughs) That's the common experience, but I love it. I love seeing how things can change with every iteration. That's a bigger message than the editing. I'm just taking (laughs) that in. And the last question, I reached out to you, Robin, and asked if you would come on the podcast. And of course, I'm grateful that you're here. Why did you say yes to coming and sharing today? Because I think there's just, there's so many different messages out there um, about what recovery can look like specifically. Um, You know, and I feel like there are certain narratives missing from that conversation. Um, and not to say that my story is like special or anything like that. Like my story is incredibly common. Um, but I don't see a lot of stories from people who gained a ton of weight and eating disorder recovery, people who got fat. And I use fat as a neutral descriptor, not as like a down on myself. Um, you know, so I was really excited when you reached out because I feel like a lot of the podcasts or media um, that talk about eating disorder recovery don't ever talk about fatness Mm -hmm. um, and don't ever represent what a different experience it is to recover into a fat body. Um, So I really wanted to to bring that. And I was also really excited to be asked to bring that um, because like I said, I feel like um, not a lot of people are asking for that story. um, And it's a pretty crucial one. Oh, absolutely. And I'm so grateful you you are here and you're going to talk about this because like I shared with you when I reached out, I have recovered in a quote thin body. Mm-hmm. And so of course I can read all the stuff and I can do fat activism and and share all of that. But I have not physically experienced personally what it's like to not be able to go to a shop and just buy clothes or to yes. worry about the chair at yes. a restaurant that's some of oh, my- the chairs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So I would love for you to start with like your journey. So how did you end up like doing the profession you are, you, you do now in this anti-diet space? Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's a, it's been quite a journey. Um, I mean, I have been writing since I literally learned to spell. Um, I was going through old boxes a while ago and found, um, I don't know, like a first grade, like compilation of things I had written, like stories I had written, um, which is great. Cause it just reminds me that like, I've always been a writer. I've always been compelled to share stories. Um, you know, and when I first got into eating disorder recovery, um, well, writing is really the way that I process things for myself as well. Um, I've always been a journaler. I have a stack of old journals. Um, You know, I've always been an essayist, um, you know, trying to pick out like that meaning from my experiences. Um, So when I first got into eating disorder recovery, I started writing um, mostly for myself. I started a blog um, and 
the response to that, um, I mean, it wasn't like huge in like the internet sense, um, but like people in my life would read what I was writing and they would say, oh my God, I felt like this. Like, I didn't know that like, you know, other people felt this way, or I didn't know that you were struggling with this. Um, you know, and I just kind of started like verbally processing, um, all of the things that I was going through with this blog, um, and really connecting to people. Um, you know, and I didn't, at the time, I didn't know where that would go. Um, I wanted to kind of break into being a professional writer, um, which has looked a lot of different ways for me. Um, but I didn't really, I didn't really know where that was going to go. Um, and at the time I, I was really thin when I first got into recovery. Um, and I had no idea that I was going to gain so much weight. Um, that was not, that was not my plan. Certainly it's not something that I wanted. Um, I had an incredible amount of both external fat phobia. Um, so, you know, kind of our learned from society fat phobia, as well as internalized fat phobia, um, because I had been, um, fat in high school, um, which is the, the worst time to be a fat person because kids are just so mean, um, mm. you know, and I'd been bullied a lot and that's kind of where the eating disorder started. Um, so I was, you know, in eating disorder recovery, relatively thin, um, writing about, I mean, I look back now and I look at my writing and I'm like, oh, this is a lot of mess of fat phobia. Um, you know, I was just kind of like publicly processing my own fat phobia, um, on this blog, um, which I mean, I can look back now and know that that is not a good look. Um, and I think that there is, there are a lot of people going through that. Um, you know, there are a lot of people going through that process in eating disorder recovery of struggling with extreme fat phobia. Um, and I think that talking about it, writing about it in spaces where it's not going to cause explicit harm um, is really helpful because there's a lot of shame associated with that in every way, like shame on ourselves um, and like shame from, you know, a world that like is so fat phobic, um, but also, you know, it does cause a lot of harm to be fat phobic. So sometimes it feels like we get shame for having those fat phobic feelings, um, you know, and I do think it's really important to, again, process that in spaces that are not going to cause harm. Um, so it's one of the reasons I love the Undiet Your Mind app so much is because it is a space for people really early in recovery um, to kind of process all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's not a space that is centering um, fat activism or centering fat folks, which there needs to be way more spaces centering that. Um, but my point being that like those spaces that do center fat folks are not the spaces to process fat phobia. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I think that having those dedicated spaces where we can be, um, you know, in community 
with people who have this knowledge to help us process that um, is really important so that we don't go into fat activism spaces and unintentionally start bringing a lot of that fat phobia. Um, you know, I kind of liken it to um, racial justice work that I've done where um, the model that we used in the um, community that I'm in is that um, we had a like specifically a space for white folks, which was like a space of learning and processing and learning nonviolent communication um, and learning to work together. And then we had a space for people of color, um, which was a community space processing trauma, um, you know, and then the two pieces would come together to do um, like actual on the ground activism work. Um, and the point of that was so that the people of color had a space that wasn't dedicated to white tears and white processing um, and white fragility. And us white folks had a space to have white tears and fragility and processing so that we didn't bring that into the actual activism work that we were doing. Um, you know, and I really love that model for fat activism as well, because there are so many people out there who are learning anti-diet things, who are in thinner bodies, who want to be not just allies, but like in this work with us, like advocates with us, um, who still have a lot to process. Um, and like, y'all deserve to process that stuff, you know, like that's an absolutely important part of being present for fat activism and showing up to fat activism with that stuff already processed is also really important yeah so that's kind of how I came into this work is like kind of backwards a little bit of like being a thin person doing all of this public processing that was probably harmful in some way um you know and then as I gained weight, as I got fatter, learning to come into these spaces of fat activism um, without um, my fat phobia and, you know, like acknowledging where it was still showing up, acknowledging where it was going to continue to show up um, and learning to bring that to the appropriate places to process it um, so that I could come back into like actual activism work um, from a space um, that was actually useful and helpful. Um, and it's so interesting because like we talk all the time about how um, harmful social media is for people's body images. And that's absolutely true. Um, and I never would have learned any of this without Instagram. Um, you know, like I started out following more I guess the term now would be like midsize creators, um, you know, and like, oh, these people are like bigger than normal, normal people, whatever that yeah. means. Um, mm -hmm. And like, they're loving their bodies and they're like doing all of this, um, you know, outfit of the day and like, I'm in a bikini and stuff like that, um, you know, and I just happened to like find some midsize creators who were really amplifying fat voices, um, which is essential because I could have stayed in that like mm -hmm. midsize 
creator space for a long time if they had not been amplifying voices of fatter folks, you know, so I started to, you know, follow other um, fatter folks um, who were doing kind of like fashion, body positive stuff. Um, and then they did their job of amplifying the voices of actual like fat activists. Um, because I do believe there's a space for both, you know, there's a space for like the, I'm fat, I'm doing fashion, I'm in a bikini, like, I, this is awesome. I love my body. Fantastic. And on top of that, there's the space for the work of like fat phobia is systemic oppression and like we need policy change um, in order to address it. Um, so I think that it's really important to recognize how people at every level of this conversation amplify voices up to getting us to fat activists, um, you know, like Aubrey Gordon and Deshaun um, Harrison and um, Mikey, Mercedes, um, Jordan Allen, um, basically, you know, the cast of Fatty's Talk Back um, mm -hmm. and uh, Maintenance Phase. Um, you know, these are people who are, who are analyzing, oh, Caleb Luna too. These are people who are analyzing, um, you know, how do we actually make change in these systems, um, which is really separate work from like the body positivity, like I love my yeah. body kind of work. Um, and so I kind of like moved up that pipeline on Instagram um, until I was writing about it um, myself, um, you know, and I'm not doing um, a lot of direct action at this point. Um, the pandemic really shut down a lot of opportunities for direct action. Um, but a lot of what I do in this space is education. Um, and again, that amplifying, um, acknowledging that like, I am a smaller fat person, which means that I have some very harmful experiences of fat phobia, but I don't have the same experiences as a super fat or infinite fat person. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so again, doing that job of amplifying other voices um, so that other people can kind of follow this pipeline that I did into fat activism. Yeah, that's amazing, Robin. And I'm so grateful that you're doing this work and I, I, I can learn from you as well in my work. When you first had like the eating disorder was like sparked within you, was that because of fat phobia, whether external or internal or both? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that every eating disorder is not just one thing. Um, like they're extremely complex um, and extremely individual, um, which is why I think it, they're so hard to treat, um, you know, because you have everybody's individual like mix of trauma um, that has led to an eating disorder because there's always trauma behind eating disorders, whether it's, um, individual trauma or systemic trauma and fat phobia is systemic trauma. Um, there's always trauma behind an eating disorder. Um, so for me, a lot of that um, was the fat phobia. Um, I grew up in a fat family um, who was not very fat phobic. Um, you know, we talked about, I also grew up in a religious family, but in a good way. Um, I always I always feel like I have to qualify that because there's a lot of weird religion out there these days. Yeah, um, but I grew up in a church that was really 
open and affirming and loving um, and kind and kind of um, like the, the higher power that I grew up with was very kind and loving higher power. Um, so my parents would always talk about how, you know, our bodies are gifts from God, um, you know, and like, these are like, our bodies are the only things that can, you know, bring God's work into the world. Um, so I got a lot of positive messages, but at the same time, um, you know, my mom was always kind of dieting. Um, and my dad was always kind of dieting, um, you know, and it was always, you know, conversations about like what snacks we had in the house or like, you know, comments about like, oh, you, you've eaten this much, like we don't need to have another snack or something like that. Um, and it certainly was not, I mean, my parents never took me to like Weight Watchers. My parents never put me on a diet. Um, my parents never, you know, gave me any explicit messages around like you need to lose weight, um, which is amazing. That is not a lot of people's stories. Um, but there was a lot of that like confusing, like they wish their bodies were smaller, yeah. um, you know, and there was a lot of that confusing, like messaging around how we should eat um, and things like that. Um, and that's just, that's how pervasive diet culture is, right? Like my parents were not out to do any body sabotaging, um, mm -hmm. in our house. And it just like creeps in to, to ever, I feel like, especially in the nineties, when I grew up, that was like diet heyday time. Um, and it just like creeps into everybody's experience. Um, so that was kind of, you know, it was kind of part of it. Um, a bigger part of it was high school. Um, you know, I was the fat friend um, to a lot of thin, pretty girls. Um, you know, I got bullied um, for being fat, um, you know, and then on top of that, um, I've struggled with um, depression and anxiety since I was very young. Um, and I just learned this year that I also have ADHD, which went undiagnosed for years and years and years. Um, so there was always, um, you know, this like inner drive to be in control of everything. Um, you know, and I think a lot of that now I can see had to do with feeling really out of control from having ADHD and not being able to like, feel like I could organize anything or like finish anything or get through anything, um, you know, and as a way to manage anxiety, um, you know, I just always kind of felt like um, nothing was in the right place um, and nothing was quite safe enough. And like, I needed to precisely control everything so that I could be safer in the world. Um, you know, so, and that comes from some trauma um, in my childhood as well. Um, but an eating disorder became a really good way um, to, you know, address that fat phobia that I had um, and get into that control. And I think that the, the control is what really, um, like, I almost say like seduced me about mm. eating disorders, right? It's like everything in my world could be out of control, but I could count and monitor and precisely control 
mm-hmm. everything. Um, you know, and I think that that is what I ended up coming back to over and over. Um, even when, and I mean, the fat phobia was certainly always a part of it too. I had an intense fear of gaining weight and specifically of being fat, which is interesting looking back on it because like my concept of being fat was not even like fat. <laughs> like It was a normal sized person, um, you know, but like, I just had this huge fear of of getting fat. And I think that somewhere in my brain that was also connected with being out of control because yeah. we have all of these narratives around fatness that like, oh, your body size is within your control, which it's not. No. Nope. Um, <laughs> and like, if you eat right, exercise right, like do all the right things, like your body will look a certain way to reflect that. Um, again, not true. So that leads to this like huge false narrative about being fat that like, you know, fat people are lazy and they overeat and they never move. And, you know, it is like, it's just this representation of being out of control. Um, you know, so I feel like that was really linked in my brain of like my body represents my internal state my body represents like who I am as a person um and if I get too fat that means I'm too out of control um what does it mean like break when someone's like you identify as fat Mm -hmm. what is there like a size range you know if, if someone was to also identify as fat like they must be you know, if I decided to identify as fat, well, really, I'm not. But then what does that mean? Yes. So, and I love this conversation um, because it comes into like objective reality versus Mm. subjective reality, right? And like my subjective reality, it was so true when I was thin and looked in the mirror that I was fat. Like that was absolutely true and real for me and it didn't match objective reality at all um you know and when it comes to like defining like what is fat um you know it means a lot of different things to a lot of people um um ash from the fat lip podcast came up with a um can't remember what they call it. I think it might be like the categories um, mm-hmm. of like small fat, um, mid fat, uh, super fat, and infinite fat. Um, and that's kind of like the spectrum of, oh, that's what they, the spectrum of fat is. Um, and so small fat is like a size 18 to 20 ish. And then infinite fat tops out at like 7X or above. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's not like a, you're in or you're out kind of thing. It is a framework to discuss the different amounts of oppression that people face, um, in each of those categories. Um, and like those categories do not match what the larger world in general calls fat. Yeah. Right. Like we 
unfortunately start fat probably around like a size 10 which um, in the UK is, is a size 14 I think for my UK listeners I think, yes. I think the US is two sizes like before yeah yep I think that's true I think yeah yeah so yeah I mean we start we start calling people fat at like smaller than a normal size person um because I think in the U.S. the latest is that um a normal sized femme presenting person is I think a size 16 at this point it used to be a size 14 and I think it's now a size 16 um you know so we start calling people fat when they're not even at the smallest end of this like truly fat spectrum. Um, you know, and again, that comes into these conversations about um, just different experiences of oppression, right? Because, you know, I think about like um, Mindy Colling or Amy Schumer, you know, like these women are not fat, mm-hmm. um, but they have endured an incredible amount of body shame um, from the media, from mainstream, um, conversation, you know, and like that body shame is real, you know? So like when we talk about, um, you know, again, getting into like the, the midsize category, um, which I think is like 10 to 16 or something like that sizes, um, like, yeah, they are dealing with body shaming, Absolutely. And that is awful. Like we know, like nobody should be having to deal with that at any point in their lives. Um, And it's not the same thing as not being able to find clothes or not being able to sit in chairs or being denied healthcare um, Mm -hmm. or being shamed at the doctor's office. Um, You know, like these are all different experiences of the systemic oppression that is fat phobia. Um, And I know there's like one of the big things that it was very hard for me to get over in the conversation about fat phobia um, is like smaller people not centering themselves in the conversation, um, which I felt very hard before I kind of reached the like fat threshold of like being an actual fat person Mm -hmm. um you know when I was like a size like 14 16 like earlier on in my recovery I was like well I want to talk about the pain that I'm experiencing Mm -hmm. um and that's totally valid and I think the message that I started to get was um that a lot of people hear about the pain that I was feeling at those sizes from fat phobia. Not a lot of people hear about what's happening to super fat and infinifat people um, and the levels of, of oppression that they're feeling. Um, so again, it's one of those, like, I do think it's really important to talk about how fat, fat phobia impacts people of all sizes yeah. and centering the experiences of those who are the fattest is really important because they're the ones who are dying because of fat phobia. They're the ones who are going to the doctor with serious health conditions and being told to lose weight. 
Um, and it then like so angry to hear yes. my clients share that. Like, I mean, I'm not in a large body, but for example, one client before she signed up with me, we had a consultation call and she's in a larger body and the doctor, she had high blood pressure and the doctor mm-hmm. said, no shit, Robin. The doctor said, you need to go on a 500 to 800 calorie a day diet to bring your blood pressure down. Instead, she signed up to my food freedom program, thank fuck. And all she did to have her blood pressure go to a completely normal range and still is, is swap um, caffeine to decaf and swap <laughs> alcohol to alcohol free. And yep. there she is. And probably yep. through our work together, actually her stress reduced because she's not shaming yes. herself anymore. Amen. Yes. <laughs> I cannot... I'm kicking myself for not remembering who wrote this article. Um, but I re- I read an article at one point that was talking about how often fat people have false blood pressure readings at the doctors because they're so stressed out about their blood pressure readings yes. Um, yes. because these things are used, they're like weaponized against yeah. us, you know, and like I... Um, I have the experience a lot of going to the doctor and having normal blood pressure and cholesterol and having doctors be like, oh, your blood pressure and your cholesterol are normal. And I'm like, yes, because they are like, that's just do you my refuse history. To get weighed? So when you go to the doctor's office, do you refuse weigh in? Um, I used to. Um, I don't so much anymore um, because it just doesn't matter to me Hmm. as much anymore um I got to a point where and I love I saw um you did a podcast on set point weight um Mm -hmm. which that was my biggest fear when I first came into recovery was like I'm gonna keep gaining weight forever yeah um and like I gained a lot of weight and like I continued to gain weight and really thought that I was just like never ever ever going to hit like this set point thing Mm -hmm. um you know and once I had gotten over um like the fear and the shock of the number on the scale I actually found it really helpful to be weighed because I wasn't my weight wasn't changing Mm. um like my weight was um within like a five to ten pound range for several years before my son was born Um, and then since my son was born, I have been within the same five to 10 pound range the entire time, um, except for the pandemic, um, which I would love to just point out to everybody who might've gained weight during the pandemic. It's probably not because you were overeating. It was probably because of chronic stress and not being able to do the same things that you were doing in your life. So just caveat. Um, but yeah, I actually, I was at the doctor yesterday. Um, I got weighed and exactly the same weight that I've been for quite some time. Um, you know, so I definitely did not want to know that number for several years. Um, and it has been really helpful for me to understand now that like, this is where my body is supposed to be. No, it doesn't look the way that is considered healthy. No, my weight is not what people would consider healthy. Um, But like, I eat the way I want to eat. I move the way I want to move. I mix that up um, 
based on how my body is feeling um, or how I'm feeling that day. And my weight has not changed. Um, you know, like I can, there are times when I don't do very much movement at all and my weight does not change. And there's times where I do a ton of movement, my weight does not change. Um, you know, and that for me has been just this confirmation of like, this is my body. Um, so what a beautiful place to arrive at because I also thought I mean I started my eating disorder when I was 13 because I started dieting from the age of nine and it was because oh. a few a few things I remember number one Britney Spears on the front oh. of a magazine with the, the cellulite circled on this tiny bit of cellulite with this body shame thing or and I remember thinking oh my god cellulite literally is like you'd rather die than have cellulite and yeah. then also yep we used to watch this program called Super Size versus Super Skinny. Do you, have you seen that? Or is no. That oh right. my God. And so I remember watching that as a child because of course my mom was like obsessed with diets and, and all of that. And my uh, husband just came home. I'm just telling oh, you. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I remember watching that and they put the fear of God into you. Oh to, yeah. God forbid you end up like in a large body. And then even yes. the poor women who they would visit they showed their lifestyle, which is of course oppression, like they can't go here, they can't go there. Yes. And it, even thin people are staying thin because they're so scared yes. of fatness. So how can, well, let me ask you first, like your personal journey, how did you get over and heal and come back to the truth of who you are and get rid of your fat phobia internally and externally? Yeah, I mean, and I will be a hundred percent honest, like it's never really gone. Um, it just doesn't occupy all of my space anymore. Um, you know, there are certainly still times where I fall into like, oh, I can have this thing to eat because I worked out today. And I'm like, come on, like, we know that's not how it works, you know? So I learned to kind of respond, um, to those thoughts. Um, and actually that was probably the most helpful tactic early on in my recovery as well, um, was I read, um, life without Ed, um, mm -hmm. by Jenny, Jenny, Shaker. Jenny, it's a, yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's it. Um, and the technique that her therapist taught her was externalizing mm -hmm. the eating disorder voice, like making it a different voice in your head so that you could talk to it, you could respond to it. Um, and my therapist used that technique as well. Um, I, I named, this is like, so like my, this dates me. Um, my um, eating disorder voice was named um, after one of the mean girls um, <laughs> from the movie. Uh, my mean, my voice was Regina George. Um, and like in therapy, um, like we would talk to Regina um, you know, and like, say like, you know, that's not real. Like, that's not the way to deal with this. Like you think that you're helping by providing this coping mechanism and you're not, you know? So we would have these like, and it felt so corny. Um, but, <laughs> but it, it worked. It worked. Um, and I think that part of the reason that it worked was understanding that, um, that voice did not innately come from me. Um, you know, like I was not born with Regina George in my head mm -hmm. to me all yeah. the time. Um, you know, that was 
I mean, it's a combination of brain chemistry, socialization, you know, all of it. Um, but that, that voice is not who I actually am. Um, you know, so that was very helpful to learn to like talk and respond to that voice. Um, and then I did a lot of just kind of self-education, um, you know, and, I read a lot of books. Um, I, I am a, I'm a huge science nerd. Like I actually love reading, um, like research papers, um, and studies and stuff like, I mean, that's why I'm a health and wellness writer now. Cause like literally my job is like read this research paper, um, and like write up something. Um, but, um, so I, I focused a lot on, the science and the research and like what does science and research actually have to say about bodies and weight loss um you know so one of the first books that i read was um body of truth by harriet brown um and she goes through all of the research um and this book is probably maybe 10 years old at this point. So it's a little bit dated, um, but she kind of systemically went through all of the weight loss research um, that was like being circulated at that time um, and kind of debunked a lot of it, um, you know, so like showing things like, yeah, so here's the study that the sugar lobby paid for, um, oh, yeah. you know, or like, you know, so she went through and she broke down like, who paid for this research? Um, mm -hmm. Like who is benefiting from this research? Um, and maintenance phase, the podcast does an amazing job of this in some of their episodes too, finding out things like weight loss studies being funded by pharmaceutical companies that are pushing weight loss drugs. Um, you know, and when you start to like dig into this stuff, it's, it sounds like conspiracy theory almost. Um, but it's real, you know, like people are paying for this research um, that supports their income streams, um, you know, so that was really helpful for me to start to understand like, oh, this, this research that I think like proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that weight loss is A, effective and B, necessary for health is like all BS. Um, Complete BS. All BS. Yeah. Um, she also did a really good job in Body of Truth of breaking down um, what these studies actually looked like and why it was not good science. So like things like small sample sizes, um, you mm. know, where they only have, you know, 10 or 15 people in the study, like that is not a representative study. That doesn't mean anything. That's 10 or 15 people. Um, you know, things like no follow-up research. Um, so yes, it is very possible for anyone to go on a low calorie diet and lose weight over a short period of time. Mm -hmm. However, they're never following up with these people five years later to see who has still lost weight, um, or who is still healthy. Um, after five years of weight loss, um, you know, so I started to look at all of that research and kind of learn why it wasn't good science. Um, and then I started to expand into like, where's the actual good science about weight, the things that are 
um, you know, looking at population level about weight. So we're talking about a huge sample size or things that are doing, um, they call them longitudinal studies that are following up with people, you know, one year, three year, five years, mm -hmm. 10 years later. Um, and surprise, surprise, the research that is actually good science shows us that people can't lose weight over the long term. Um, and that people who are stuck in weight cycling, this yo-yo dieting back and forth of losing weight and gaining weight, um, completely screw up their metabolisms yeah. and end up fatter than they were in the beginning. Um, you mm -hmm. know, and that that is a biological process that our bodies are supposed to do. Um, like our bodies are supposed to make us hungrier when we're dieting yeah. because they need a certain amount of energy to survive. Um, you know, and there's some newer studies coming out that are finally um, showing what I think most dieters know to be true, which is that the people who are maintaining weight loss over a long period of time are still engaging in disordered behaviors. I'm so um, glad you've said that. One of the yeah. podcasts I've done, um, I think the title is, how do people who lose weight and keep it off do it? And yeah. so I thought that when I first got into this work five years ago, I thought, wait, I actually broke the system because they say like within five years, people will gain the weight back. And yes. I thought that I, cause I, I used to do fitness modeling and I was very yes. mean for almost five years, but I was binging and purging and using laxatives and all of that. So not only did I not cheat the system because I've gained all the weight back anyway, after five years, like I could not hold myself back from eating any longer. Yes. I was also in a full-blown eating disorder to, to keep said thin body. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and like the things that they don't tell you are disordered behaviors, mm -hmm. right? You know, and like, because uh, I had it because I was that person who was like, oh, I lost the weight. You can lose it too. And yeah. I've maintained it for X amount of years or whatever. Um, but I had it in my head that if I was eating at all, then it wasn't an eating disorder. Or if I was eating like over 1200 calories a day, then it wasn't an eating disorder. You know, society normalizes shit. Yes. Yep. Well, and the like the second chapter of my eating disorder was being an athlete. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I told myself for a few years that like I don't I don't have an eating disorder. I'm an athlete. Um, you know, like and of course I gravitated to a weight cutting sport. Um, I was a mixed martial arts fighter. Um, you know, so I would train for fights and for every competition, I would have to, to weight cut, um, you know, and I was at the gym um, six days a week, two to three hours a day. Um, I was not eating anywhere near the amount that I needed to, to support that kind of activity. Mm -hmm. um, but that seemed completely normal to me because yeah. everybody else around me was doing it. Um, and I think particularly in martial arts, one of the biggest problems is that um, most of the coaches are men mm -hmm. um, and men and women just do not lose weight 
in the same way. Um, like I would see the men that I was training with cut like 10 pounds of water weight in like, I don't know, 24, 36 hours or something like that. And like, they were fine. They weren't even really like losing weight. Um, but like women can't do water cuts Mm -hmm. like that, you know? So like we would do all of the, um, female assigned at birth, um, athletes that I was training with, we would all go through these like slogging eight to 10 week, like diet weight cut programs and like wonder why we weren't performing well at the gym and like pushing ourselves even harder. And it's like, no, you're literally starved and your body wants a nap. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yes. Um, but like, I looked really great and I was really lean and like, I could beat you up on the street if I saw you, you know, and like all of that was just like, oh, I'm an athlete. I'm very fit. I'm very disciplined. Um, you know, and like it got fed by people saying that to me all the time too. Like, oh, I wish I loved exercise as much as you do. And like, I wish I had the discipline that you do to like do these, you know, like weight cut plans and everything. And it's like, no, this is just like an eating disorder on paper. Like I have been prescribed an eating disorder by my coach. Um, And not that they had any ill intentions. Like it's so normalized normalized in the sport that this is just like what you do. Um, You know, so I never like, I never am out there being like, my coaches were like harming me. Mm -hmm. Um, Like they had, they had no idea um, what was going on for me. Um, and I do think that there are some athletes who are able to do all of that without harming their mental health. Um, that's just their experience. Um, it's not mine. Um, you know, and I'm always transparent about the fact that like, when I went into training for these competitions, I didn't tell anybody that I had an eating disorder history. I didn't tell my coaches. I didn't tell the people I trained with at all. Didn't even, didn't even occur to me that I should, um, you know, and it could have been handled a lot differently if anybody had known that I was already predisposed um, to all of these disordered behaviors, um, yeah. you know, and I started doing the sneaky stuff of like, um, you know, cutting calories off my plan and not telling my coach and like adding in extra workouts and telling this coach, but not this coach. Um, because that's what eating disorder brain does, right? It's, yeah. It's never good. It's never good enough. And no. I yeah. see like, in terms of what you've just shared, like, and I mean, I don't think anyone should diet ever, ever anyway, but people that have had disordered eating or eating disorders to fuck around in any way with restriction is just like avoid it at all costs. It's like someone who has run marathons after marathons and has severely damaged their knee forever. Yes. And they, and then their friend starts training for a marathon and they're like, oh no, but then so-and-so, and then they start running again. Well, they've yep. got a history of like a, basically like a broken knee. So you yes. cannot do those behaviors and that you can exactly. engage in those behaviors anyway. But Robin, as we're coming up kind of to the end of the time, 
what advice would you give someone who is in recovery from disordered eating or an eating disorder and their weight is going up and up and up and they're like mm-hmm. in a fat phobic world yeah. how how can they make peace with their body changing and not keep going up and down in the yo-yo cycle because of the world they live in absolutely um therapy <laughs> lots of therapy like I cannot stress um, how much of my recovery is due to having an incredible therapist who really pushed me, um, and not necessarily even around like my eating behaviors or my exercise behaviors or anything. We didn't really focus a lot on that stuff. Um, you know, he really pushed me to look at trauma, um, and look at, you know, my anxiety and this base level of like, why do I feel like I need to control the world in order to be safe? Um, Mm. You know, so that work is like the individual work that I think everybody with an eating disorder needs to do because it's not, it is about the food and the exercise because those are the behaviors. Um, But it's like not really about that. Um, Mm. It's about, something in your brain that says, um, you're not good enough. You Mm -hmm. need to keep trying to like control everything so that everything is perfect. I don't know what it is for everybody. That's a lot of what it was for me. Um, and then I would say, read as much as you possibly can, um, about how absolutely screwed up um, our health system is, um, you know, even the, the definition of health, um, how that's tied to thinness, um, how garbage all of this science about weight loss and dieting is, um, that education is really what has carried me through knowing that, like, I was fed a lie for years, you know, so that every time that fat phobia, comes up where that desire to diet comes up, which it still does every once in a while, I can say like, it's not worth it. Like, it's not mm-hmm. like, even if you manage to lose weight, you would gain it back. Even if you manage to lose weight, you would make your metabolism worse. Even if you manage to lose weight, you would compromise your health yeah. um, and not health the way our system sees it. But like, blood pressure, cholesterol, um, thyroid function, like all of that was completely screwed up when I was thin. Um, and getting in touch with fat activists, how fat people who are also doing fat activism, however you can, um, like I said, Instagram was a huge part of my, Mm -hmm. like education into all of this. Um, Because I think what really snapped me out of like just being obsessed with that fat phobia and like really trapped in that thinking um, was understanding that there are intricately built systems that want to keep me trapped in that fat phobia. Yeah. Um, And that it's not really about me. It's not really about who I am as a person. It's about these systems that want me to not feel good about myself because then I buy something um, 
to yeah. feel good about myself. Follow the to- money. Like I, I used to ask myself when I was insecure, wait a minute, who is profiting off my insecurity yes. right now? Yes. If I take the action that would be harmful to try and quote, control my insecurity. Yes. I love that question so much. Um, and I mean, to, to twit, like who profits from this specifically? Um, because there's always somebody who's going to profit off you feeling bad about yourself. Um, and the truth is like, we don't have anything to feel bad about. It doesn't matter what you look like. doesn't matter what size you are. doesn't matter what weight you are. doesn't matter how you present your gender. doesn't matter your sexuality. We don't have anything to feel bad for. And if somebody is trying to make you feel bad about them, that it's either a system trying to profit off of you or a person who is feeling deeply bad about themselves. Um, How can someone advocate for themselves? So for the last, like, I mean, if you're okay for like four minutes or so. Yeah, totally. How can someone advocate for themselves? So if they're in a fat body and they go to a restaurant and they can't fit in the chair or they go to the doctor's office and the fucking doctor prescribes weight loss as if it's an actual pill. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't work anyway. Yeah. What can people do for themselves? That's the hardest part, I think, of this is the actual self-advocacy. Um, I, even with like all of my education and all of my writing and all of my very strong voice, um, in my writing, um, I still freeze when I'm at the doctor. Um, I still, you know, I, I walk out of the doctor's office and 20 minutes later have all of these like studies that I could have brought up or like things that I could have said or whatever. Um, and the, the standby that I go to is rehearsing, um, especially for the weight loss, like re- rehearsing one line that I can say, which is for me, um, weight loss is not an option for me. Weight loss does not work. And I will not take that. Um, I will not take that as an answer to this, um, you know, and doctors get really flabbergasted. And then like you get the, like, you can see them do like, oh, non-compliant patient. Um, you know, and honestly, I don't go back to that doctor. Mm-hmm. I have a really good um, medical team around me because I also have some chronic illnesses um, who aren't focused on my weight at all. Um, so if I do have to interact with a doctor who is being an ass like that, um, <laughs> I don't go back and I talk to my doctors about it. Um, and that is part of my ad- advocacy is having doctors around me who are weight neutral um and who don't do any of that um and I would say for like social situations public situations um a lot of the advocacy can actually be educating your friends um so that you are not always the person who has to do the thing um when you're out you know, um, because unfortunately as a fat person, people probably aren't going to respond to you very well. So when you say like, you know, can I please get a table instead of a booth? Um, because lots of us don't fit in booths. Um, you know, you might get the waiter being snappy or rolling their eyes or, you know, just generally being hostile. 
Um, you know, so what works a lot better in those situations is having a thin or normal sized friend saying, actually, we'd really rather sit at a table, mm-hmm. um, you know, and not, not making a big deal out of it, not making it about weight. Um, but having friends who know that they can do that for you. Um, because the number of things that I just didn't know about, um, before I lived in a fat body is just wild. Like it never would have occurred to me, um, you know, to, to ask for things like that. Um, you know, I'm thinking now of like all the times when I was a kid or a teenager and we went to restaurants, um, you know, and my mom just kind of struggled to get in a booth, um, you know, and like, I never had that experience until being in a fat body, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and so many of us just struggle, um, to do the thing anyway, because we don't want to make a big deal. Um, we don't want to be that person who's throwing a fit, you know, um, but at any point we could have said, like, we'd rather sit at a table than have a booth. Um, and that's, that's simple. That's not a scene. That's nothing. Um, you know, so I think a lot of that advocacy can be with the people that love you um, and asking them to help you advocate for yourself. Yeah. And then to feel the, the shame because I, a client of mine was scared to death to go on a plane. She was like, please don't let me get a seat extender. Please yes. get a seat extender. Planes. And I was, you know, she didn't actually have to get one, but she was so scared leading yes. up to this fly. And then if she did have to get one, we of course would need to talk about the shame that's in her body. Yes. And it makes me so upset and angry, even as a thin person, because they're a fucking human. Like it's not okay. Yes. And I get so upset with this. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And those are the kinds of things that are the systemic things. There's actually, um, I believe the FAA right now is um, taking feedback on the size of airplane seats. um, So people can actually, um, I would say just Google it um, right now. um, But they are actually taking public comment on changing the size of airplane seats. So those are really like when those opportunities come up, that's a perfect example of how this is systemic. Like airplanes are manufactured in a certain way with certain seat size specifications that are discriminatory. They're um, tiny. They're, they're, even tiny. as a normal size person, I literally, my bum yes. just like is squashed against both the things. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I And I have not yet to use a seatbelt extender, but I barely fit in the seats anymore. Um, you know, so those are the kinds of things where that is a systemic problem. And there is an opportunity right now for people to have a say in that systemic yes. problem. And that's the kind of stuff we're talking about with actual fat activism versus body positivity versus like working on your yes. own body image is like, look for those opportunities. Is there a place in your community that only has chairs with arms on them? Yeah. And you write to them and ask them to get chairs without arms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is there a venue that you go to that doesn't have a ramp 
you know, for disabled folks, like, can you write to them and ask, you know, that's the kind of stuff that we can do to address systemic level issues. It starts with us and we can change the world, yes. can't we? Yes, we can. absolutely. Oh, Robin, I could, I, there's so many questions I still want to ask <laughs> you, but um, we have we have to wrap up. Is there any, well, first of all, do you work with clients? Like, do you work with people like on a one-to-one basis? I don't. Um, I haven't done any coaching or anything like that. Um, if people want to read more of my writing, I do have a Patreon. Um, so you can um, head to my Patreon. I'm not doing a lot of more extensive writing on Instagram anymore. Um, but a lot of the stuff that I have written in the past is all there. So yeah, if they want to read more of my essays, my Patreon is up. Of course. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. And I'm so glad that we're connected because I can learn a lot from you. And, you know, the takeaway that I've got is, we can change the world and it starts with us thin people medium people fat people to see in our environment what can be changed to make it all inclusive for everyone and that is what's going to change over time isn't it don't leave it for someone else to do us we can do it yeah so thank you thank you so much thank you so much the most amazing day and um i will see you too thank you bye-bye yeah I hope this episode was everything you needed to hear today and more. If you love this podcast, then please screenshot this episode and share it to your Instagram or Facebook stories and tag me at Victoria Kleinsman so I can share you with my audience and we can get my podcast out to more women that need it. Also, I'd be super duper grateful if you could rate and review this podcast as it really does help others to find it. Thank you so, so much in advance and I'll see you on the next one.